Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. All right, good morning. Good to see everybody. All right, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it to Genesis chapter 3. We are going through the first 12 chapters of Genesis this spring, and then we'll take a break and get into something else and get back into Genesis, and eventually over the next, uh, I don't know, year or so, we'll, we'll cover the whole book of, of Genesis in blocks. And we find ourselves today in one of the, I think, not one of, it's, it's, it's probably, certainly, the uh, saddest chapter in the Bible, but even in the midst of the despair that we'll read about in Genesis 3 in the fall of mankind, as Doug alluded to in his, his opening prayer, we see the hope of the gospel. So if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to, uh, to, to use one of the Bibles in the chair rack in front of you, and you can keep that Bible as your own if you don't have a Bible. But again, like we say every now and again, if it's just nicer than the one you already have, it's not really an upgrade situation. All right, it's, it's kind of like if you don't have one type of a situation. And uh, you can find Genesis 3 on uh, probably page 2 or 3 in, in that Bible. As you're finding it, which uh, hopefully won't take you too long, um, I just want to mention men in particular. Uh, I want you to, to, if you're not used to reading the bulletin, I want you to avail yourself of uh, a men's study that's starting on this Thursday. Uh, Cecil Cheeves is going to be leading a study through Pilgrim's Progress which is the second most published and read book in the history of the world next to the Bible. It was written by this Puritan named John Bunyan. Uh, not Paul Bunyan, a different guy, totally different situation. John Bunyan, who was an English uh, pastor and preacher, and so Cecil will be leading Thursday mornings, starting this Thursday, February 27th, 7 in the morning, in one of those classrooms right, right next to uh, the kitchen. Now, I realized that a few weeks ago, I referred to that book not as Pilgrim's Progress, but as Puritan's Progress. And again, I want to thank you for the, many, for the many emails and notes that I received because of your care and love for me as a congregation. And my mistake, I was once again um, served so well by a loving congregation. Um, not quite as much uh, traffic as we got when I referred to Yoda as being on Star Trek. Evidently, that's like you're more passionate about that than spiritual things. But, but never, nevertheless, uh, I feel so loved every time I make a mistake. So it's Pilgrim's Progress, just to, just to clarify. So in the fall of 1989... I was a plebe at the United States Military Academy at West Point, New York. And every morning, uh, plebes had to get up and read. I would get up at 5 o'clock in the morning with my roommate, and we would have to read the front page of the New York Times, every article on the front page of the New York Times, and be conversant on the contents of that article, and every article on the front page of the sports page of the New York Times. Every morning, we had to do that. I don't know if that still happens. I think standards have lightened a lot. I don't know what happens to plebes nowadays. I don't know if they just roll out of bed at 8 and eat donuts. I'm not sure. But we would have to... Uh, yeah, Mike, I see you nodding your head. Is that what plebes just kind of sleep until 8? Okay. 
But we would have to become conversant on the front page of the New York Times and the articles there because at formation that morning, you would be asked by an upper-class cadet randomly, cadet, what did you read today in the New York Times? And you'd have to stand at the position of attention and say, sir, today it was reported in the New New York Times that, and whatever the content of the article, you had to give a few sentences and a paragraph or so, and and something uh, was very evident when you uh, had to read the front page of the paper every day. It's that the world is a broken place. In the fall of 1989, the big issues were, were the tensions of the Cold War and the fall of the Soviet Union. I can remember reporting on that early in the morning to a less-than-kind upper-class cadet many times. Around that time in New York City, the mayor, uh, Giuliani, at that time he was the district attorney, was dismantling the Italian mafia in Little Italy, and men like John Gotti were in the news every day as they were on trial for their crimes. And I wondered if, it's been some time since I read the New York Times, I wondered if, if the news has gotten any better. And so this morning I printed off on the internet the picture of the front page of the New York Times, and these are the articles on the front page. Ukraine's leader flees the capital. Elections are called. Parliament says that the president can't perform his duties. His arch rival leaves prison. Another, El Chapo, the most wanted drug lord in Mexico, was captured evidently yesterday. Another article says that there is political asylum fraud that is rampant with Chinese people in Chinatown and the whole industry of political asylum is an industry of lies. The other article is about farmers in India who commit suicide and how then the debts fall on families to pick up the pieces. The only article that is even just a glimmer of anything halfway positive is the hot debate over (laughs) e-cigarettes. Like that's the most cheerful thing going on on the front page of the New York Times today. The world is a broken place. And this morning we read from Genesis chapter 3 about why the world is a broken place. And we see the headwaters. We see the beginning of the stream. We see the spring of the pollution of all humanity. These are monumental words. They're difficult words. They're sad words. But yet even in the midst of these words that we'll read, there's the glimmer of certain gospel hope in the midst of the darkness. So let me pray and we'll, we'll read. Oh Lord, as we come now to your text, Lord, we need your help. Because we live in the most prosperous and industrialized and modern society in the history of civilization, it is easier for us, maybe than in other times past, to inoculate ourselves from the despair of this broken world. But whether our lives are marked by comfort or whether by great despair and destruction, all of us, Lord, have this inner sense of pain and this sort of biting voice inside of us that reminds us that things are not as they should be. The world is a broken place. 
And certainly this room is filled with people that have experienced great tragedy and despair. We have not only experienced it coming to us from the outside, but we have experienced it because of our own sin and idolatry and our own wickedness that exists in every human heart. Father, as we read these words today, I pray that you'd give us an unusual sober-mindedness, that you would click us into reality, and that ultimately you would lift our heads so that even in this darkest of storms in Genesis, Genesis 3, we would see the glimmer of certain gospel hope. I pray that you'd help us understand these things, that Christians would be encouraged, and that unbelievers in this room would for the first time, see their state before a holy God and that, God, you would use this morning to be the means to bring them to faith in Christ so that they would turn away from themselves and trust in you. And, Lord, we know that that will take a miracle to happen. You must bring them back to life. I pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, before I read, let me just give you the outline of where we're, where we're going to go this morning. I think that we are going to learn four things from this chapter. So I'm going to give it to you up front. All the notes will be on the internet in a day or two if you, uh, if you just want to sit back and take it in and not worry about writing it down. Four things that I think we'll learn. First, we'll learn about Satan, about our adversary, the devil. Second, we'll learn about man and woman, not just Adam and Eve, but all men and all women. Third, we'll learn about sin. We'll learn about the despair of human rebellion. And fourth, we'll learn, most importantly, about the gospel of Jesus Christ and what God has done to rescue a people for himself. Well, let's begin reading in verse 1. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice there that he uses the word just God, Elohim, not Lord God. That we learned last week that Genesis 2 reveals about God. He's not just the creator of the universe, but he's the personal, covenantal, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God who is our Father, who personally creates us. Did God actually say, the serpent says, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, God didn't say that second part. She's sort of adding something to it, isn't she? Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, 
She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, one of the most important verses in the Bible. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed, clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, what can we learn about our adversary, the devil, from this chapter? There's a couple things I think we learn. We learn clearly that he is... He's crafty. In fact, it, it says that there in verse 1. It says that the serpent, which is, we don't know exactly how this happened. I do believe it was a real snake that the, the devil 
embodied or moved upon this snake to uh, not surprise Eve because she was used to seeing snakes, but I do believe that it was a real serpent. He's crafty, deceiving himself, deceiving his figure, coming to her and something that she was used to seeing. And we see this in the New Testament. We see Paul writing in 2 Corinthians 11. He says that that the devil was cunning in verse 3 when he deceived Eve. And we see later on in that same chapter that that the, that the devil comes as an angel of light. I mean, if he were to jump out from behind a rock in his ugly, despised form, I mean, you know, that, would, that would be an indicator that something's up. And he, do, he does the same to us. He comes to us, Paul says, as an angel of light. He's, he's crafty. And notice also about Satan that he twists God's words. There in the second verse, he says, did God actually say, let alone the fact that he, he didn't really properly identify God in all of his beauty towards Adam and Eve and creation that we saw in Genesis 2. He doesn't refer to God in his covenantal name. He just refers to him as this distant word for God, Elohim, a creator. He, he leaves off the covenantal name of God. And he says, he says that he misquotes God's word. He says, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Is this what God said? And just as he is attacking Eve, trying to bring doubt into what God actually said, the, the enemy, Satan, is still doing the very same thing to God's people today. He misquotes God, and he tries to make God look like he is not out for our good, and that he, in fact, our adversary, is our true benefactor. In fact, I think that's the great, the great ploy of Spiritual warfare. We'll look a little bit at it this Wednesday when we talk about the role of demons. Is that, is that the enemy is trying to convince us that God is holding us back from true joy. This is what he's still doing today. 1 Peter 5, 8. We read about it a few months ago when we worked through 1 Peter. The devil prowls about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. So therefore we should be sober-minded and watchful. Secondly, we learn about man and woman. The first man and woman, Adam and Eve, and then every man and woman that has flowed from this first fountain of humanity, our first parents, Adam and Eve. One thing we learn is you see there just our natural tendency, like our first mother Eve, to add more restrictions to God's command. So we're already kind of believing that God is not out for our good. Do you notice what she does there? And I don't want to make too much out of this, but you see in verse 3 where she's sort of trying to correct the devil, and she says, no, God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Okay, she got that right, and then she sort of adds this, this extra clause on the end of it. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. You know, we're just kind of, we're just sort of bent to be Pharisees, aren't we? Just to sort of add regulations on to God's word to make it even more difficult to obey Eve, like the rest of mankind, is, is by nature religious here in this encounter with the devil. Notice also about the man. Notice Adam's passivity and failure to lead. You know, you just kind of get this picture, I think, that, that Eve is sort of having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with this serpent. And Adam is like riding a buffalo while he's throwing a spear at an elephant, taking it down and, you know, getting its husk, ah, you know, painting blue paint, you know, and 
coming down the countryside, conquering, I'm mixing together time periods now, William Wallace and Adam, sorry. But we get this impression that, you know, Adam is not there, but what, what, is, what does it say that Adam was right there? It says in verse 6 that she took its fruit and ate, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her. And so I, I would contend that the, that the first sin of humanity is not Eve's disobedience or her adding, to the re, adding restrictions to God's word or her deceit and then her sin. It is Adam's passivity. <laughs> because God created man first, not because man is more important or intrinsically valuable, but because God has created an order and he's created men and women to complement one another and he's created men to humbly lead. And the first failure here is Adam's failure to lead. And then this leads to and gives way and leaves Eve unprotected. And then notice also about man and woman and about ourselves, we see Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve try and shift the blame. I mean, just come to our house when it's bedtime. Or come when the, the seeming tranquility of a peaceful evening at home is shattered by one of the younger siblings crying out a death-curdling cry. And you walk into the room and something's laying all out or whatever. And before you know it, you get a litany of blame of who. I mean, and it's usually the youngest who will just sort of tell you everything about how everybody else is guilty. He did this. She did this. We are by nature blame shifters, aren't we? And we get this honestly. We get it from our first parents. Look at, look at, look at Eve. The, the serpent deceived me in verse 13. But Adam's is even worse. Like, he's not really blaming Eve. Notice what Adam is doing. He's actually blaming God, isn't he? He's not just saying, oh, man, Eve. I mean, he's saying, the woman that you gave me. I mean, ultimately, sin, friends, is is not just a horizontal relationship. Ultimately, all sin is like we're shaking our fist at God saying that you you didn't set it up right for me. You're holding something back from me. The way you created me and your good providence is not good enough. Man and woman, the first man and woman and everyone after them, has by nature been blame shifters. And then notice that God holds the man primarily responsible in verse 9. Even though Eve's sin is mentioned first, The Lord God called to the man, singular, and said to him, Where are you, Adam? God calls Adam first. He's holding the man first and primarily accountable for the fall. And then we see God punishing the man and the woman for their disobedience. We see Adam being told that he will endure frustration in his work and the ground and the garden and the world that he was given to steward and manage in chapter 2 will now become a point of toil and hardship and labor for him because the ground is cursed and his leadership over creation will now be a struggle. And to Eve, in verse 16, she will have pain and childbearing. And she will have pain in her relationship with her husband. In verse 
16, notice there at the end of that sentence, it says that your desire shall be for your husband. And that doesn't just mean that like a sensual desire. In fact, that's really not what it means at all there. That word in the original language is really used only one other time in the Bible, and it's used in Genesis chapter 4, which we'll get to next week. I think it's verse 16 or 17, where God is warning Cable, uh, God is warning Cain when, after he kills, after he's about to kill his brother Abel, that sin desires to master you. And that's the same word that's being used here in verse 16 of God when he speaks to Eve of the consequences of her rebellion. He's saying that you will toil in your relationship and you will inappropriately desire to master your husband. And now the created order of Adam as the humble leader laying down his life to protect, that's been shattered. And now Eve's willing submission to Adam's rightful protection and leadership is now twisted and broken. And now she will try to struggle and usurp and put herself in authority over the man. And we see this played out all over the place. I said last week that I think the number one problem in the world and the number one problem in America and the number one problem in Columbus, Georgia and the number one problem in this church is the passivity of men. I'm not singling out just the men of this church in particular. I'm just making a universal statement that I think that the biggest problem in the world is, is male passivity. And then that gives rise to women inappropriately trying to grab authority and rule over a man. I, I, I kind of give women a break in that because I think that their sin is primarily a reaction to the passivity of men. But just a little application here. Just know this, women, that there's just something in you as a consequence of the fall that will, you'll have this desire to inappropriately usurp and dominate men. Young lady, that guy that you're dating... You can't fix him. Right? This is how, I mean, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is how it plays out. So that little motherly instinct in you, oh, but he prays before he eats and his hair is so, I mean, once we get married, everything, no. That little thing in you that makes you think that you can kind of engineer things, It springs from that verse. Like, you've got this thing in you that you think you can fix him. If he is a dud before the ring, he'll be a dud after the ring. Can I I get a north-south on that? All right. Now, I am not saying, hear me, hear me, I'm not contradicting everything we believe here about the power of the gospel. People can and do change. In fact, people must change. In fact, that's what it means to be a Christian is change. To grow in ever-increasing likeness like Jesus. But, sweetheart, you can't be the primary agent in that change. It must be God mediated through other men. And the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. I need to go any... Okay, I can, I can just get off of that one. That really actually wasn't in my notes. I had just a little something, something there for you. So we learn about man and woman. Thirdly, we learn about sin. And there's some really important things that I think we need to understand here to understand the rest of the Bible. 
one thing we learn about sin is that it has spread to all mankind. And so there's no like doctrinal statements made about sin and its spreading and its effects necessarily in this chapter and all of the rest of the Old Testament. But we see the rest of the Old Testament be a, a sort of object lesson. We see it be sort of a play that plays out the effects of, of this first sin. And, and this becomes the fountainhead. It's like there's this spring of water that now has this, this sewer tapped into it. And everything that comes out of that fountainhead of water of humanity, Adam and Eve and all of their progeny, are now tainted with this sin. And we see in the New Testament, we see Paul sort of codify this in Romans chapter 5, when he's speaking about Adam, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, a super important verse in the Bible. Romans 5, verse 12, super important chapter in the Bible. Super important book. I, I, mean, I could get, all right, anyway. Romans 5, the, maybe the most important book in the New Testament. Romans chapter, Rome, Romans. Anyway, don't get me started. You guys are distracting me. <laughs> Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now those last three little words are words that have been, volumes have been written about that. We were not physically there, right? But yet in some sort of Strange, difficult to explain, spiritual union sort of way, Paul is saying that in Adam, all of us have participated. We all sinned. And, and, and so, therefore, for centuries, Christians have believed that what Romans 5 is teaching in the rest of the Bible is that we are sinners by nature and by choice. I don't think we have to convince anybody that we're sinners by choice. I mean, all of us. I mean, is anybody going to stand up and say, no, no, I'm a, I'm a pretty good dude. I mean, I'm, I make, no, no, I mean, okay. If that's you, meet us afterwards, okay? And pack a lunch because we got some talking to do. But, but by nature, right? By nature. We're, we're born not innocent or neutral, but by nature because all of us, all of humanity, all men, because all sin. And that's telling us that sin has spread throughout all of humanity. Now, some people may object and say, wait a minute, that's just not fair. Why would I be represented in Adam long ago when I wasn't even there and I didn't even, even do anything? Okay, that's a fair argument. But let's carry that argument through to the rest of Romans chapter 5 that says now those that are saved are all in Christ, right? And so he's making the same argument that you're an Adam because you're a human and you're a sinner, and now, those that are saved are in Christ, and they're saved not because they're good, but because Jesus is good. And so if we complain about being in Adam, we also have to complain about being in Christ and say, no, no, I want to stand before God on my own works. Nobody wants to make that argument. Right? So we understand, like, we're represented by a head. The first man, Adam, all of us by nature, and then we've proven it by choice, are sinners, which we read at the beginning of the service, renders us now fallen, condemned under God's just and right holy wrath. And then all of us that are trusting in Christ are in Christ. 
And so we learn that sin spreads to all mankind and all sin, friends. I know I use this illustration a lot, but I think it bears repeating, especially if somebody in this room is wrestling with this and never heard this. You may, I, I know the objection because I, I have it in my own heart sometimes. Like, oh, come on, God, is, is all sin really that bad? I mean, I can understand the, you know, did you read in the paper last week in the Columbus Ledger about these three teenagers that accosted this woman and beat her and abused her and then set her on fire here in our area? And it's easy for us to think, oh, yeah, that deserves punishment. But, you know, I'm, I mean, you know, come on. I mean, I'm not that bad of a guy. Went to a few too many parties maybe when I was in college, whatever. I used to steal metal air caps off of nice cars in my neighborhood and sell them at the bike rack at my elementary school. No. Okay. Well, friends, sin does not get its weight by the relative consequences horizontally amongst mankind. Remember, sin gets its weight by the holiness and the dignity of the one against whom it is committed. Right? So I've used this analogy many times before. Like if one of the young guys in this room, in the middle of my sermon, jumped up on stage as I was preaching and slapped me across the face, well, (laughs) that would be super awkward. And it might, like, hurt our relationship. But at the end of the day, you know, nothing really drastic would happen. But if this was medieval England and King Arthur were here and the Knights of the Round Table were around him and we were all vassals and plebeians in his kingdom and one of us broke through the Knights of the Round Table and slapped the king of the kingdom across the face, off with your head. So do you see the principle there? That sin, the same sin, it doesn't find its weight by like horizontal consequences, it finds its weight because of the, the office of the one against whom it is committed. And so on an infinitesimally grander scale, even the smallest indignity, even the smallest idolatry against a holy and righteous God, all of us have turned. So whether it is some obvious public act of sin that has many consequences, or whether it is internal self-righteousness and idolatry where we are thumbing our nose at the eternally good and holy creator, friends, all sin, whether internal or external, whether self-righteous or criminal, deserves the just and holy condemnation and separation from God forever and ever and ever. Friends, wrestling with that, I realize, is difficult, but understanding that is the key to understanding the Bible and the need for the gospel because we do not need help. We need rescue. We need to be brought back to life. And that's what sin has done to us. It separated us from God which is death. God promises Adam and Eve that they will surely die. And although Adam lived until he was 900 or so, I think it says later on in Genesis, although he did not immediately physically die, he did die. But the real death is spiritual death, to be cast away from the presence of God forever and to face the dread and the despair that goes along with being separated from God eternally under his just 
punishment. Sin separates us from God. And then finally, looking at sin here, it leaves us, it renders us completely unable to make ourselves right. It leaves us completely unable to rectify the situation or correct it. We are outside of God's presence. Adam and Eve are outside, condemned by God, expelled from the garden, and now they are completely unable in and of their own power to repair the situation. We see Paul mention this again in Romans chapter 8. Let me go to Romans 8 and read from verses 7 and 8 of Romans 8. This is Paul's logic about what sin has done to humanity. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh, that's Paul's way of saying somebody who's not in Christ, who is still outside of Christ, not yet a believer in him, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so sin has rendered us, it's spread to all mankind, it's separated us from God, it's led to spiritual and physical death, and it renders us completely unable to make ourselves right. Friends, I know in our culture, in, in America, in autonomy, we self-individualization, we talk a lot about, well, people are free, our wills are free. Friends, our, our wills are not free, they are enslaved. I think that's the whole point of Romans chapter 6. You can read about this. We're slaves to sin. Now, we are free to do what we want to do. But an unregenerate heart, a heart that's not been changed by God, is only free to do what it really only wants to do. And when our heart is separated from God, it only wants to do rebellion. It only wants to prop ourselves up and make ourselves idols. And that's what sin has done. Which leads us to... The hope of the gospel, the fourth point, what we learn about the gospel. Did you notice there in verse 14, I'll read it again, 14 through 15. Even in the midst of this despair and the the sadness and the tragedy of the consequences of the fall, we see this glimmer of gospel hope. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And here it is, verse 15. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, speaking of a particular person, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is God saying to the serpent there? He's saying that there shall be offspring of the woman and you'll have offspring. And this offspring of the woman, this singular he, this man, God is speaking of the man, Christ Jesus, there. He's foreshadowing Christ. And he's saying that he will come and you'll strike his heel. Yes, he will be injured, the cross. We see the cross. Jesus does, he does die on the cross. Satan gets a blow, but Christ shall shall crush Satan's head by coming back from the grave and defeating death and sin and all of its consequences. And right there in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, in the midst of the despair of the darkness of the fall, we have God preaching the gospel for the first time in verse 15. The utter despair of darkness and across the darkness, God promises the hope of the gospel that Jesus is coming 
And you may strike him, but he will crush your head. And there we see atonement and the plan of redemption set in motion. God promises to bruise Satan's head. And then we see that sin must be covered and atoned for. We see even as God clothes Adam and Eve, they had this meager attempt to take leaves and cover themselves with fig leaves, but God is setting up a pattern here of redemption, and he is necessarily shedding the blood of an animal and making skins to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. And he's showing us that the innocent will be sacrificed to cover the guilty. And even here in the first moments after the great fall, we see this pointing towards the atonement of Jesus who will ultimately cover our sin once and for all. Not because of the blood of bulls and goats or lambs, but because of His perfect blood and sacrifice on the cross. And so even here in the first moments after the fall, we see God preaching the gospel and promising a Savior. All right, so here's a question as we wrap this up and end. And actually, somebody submitted this question for us to answer on Wednesday, but we knew that we were going to get to it in Genesis 3, and I think it's a legitimate question. And the question is, if we read in Genesis 2 that God created mankind good, and we spent a lot of time in Genesis 1 talking about the, the, the power and the authority of God. Remember, we read from Isaiah 46 where it says that God knows the end from the beginning. In Ephesians 1, that says he plans all things according to his purpose. So we see this sovereign God who's all-powerful, who can do whatever he wants. Psalm 135 says that the Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, and he's created creation good. He's created humanity very good, and now we see the fall. So if God is good and he is all-powerful, why did he even allow Genesis 3 to happen? Why did he allow the sin and fall? Well, friends, at this point, we are, we are wading into deep waters, right? So there's much more that I could be said. So if you need to blow up your little, your little, little you know, swimmies or whatever to put around your, shoulder, your arms so you don't sink, uh, go ahead and do that now. These are deep waters, I was very helped as I was wrestling with this by um, Augustine back in the 300s, and then this man named Thomas Boston, a Puritan pastor in England in the 1600s, who wrote about the fourfold state of man. I think this is very helpful. We're going to put it up on the screen for you to see, and I think it's it's very helpful. It's just common sense, looking at the storyline of the Bible of the fourfold state of man. So we've read about in the first couple chapters, man pre-fall, okay? Adam and Eve pre-fall. They're able to sin, as we see that in Genesis 3. We just read about it. That was obvious. They're created very good, but yet they're still able to sin. But they were able not to sin, but yet they fell. So that's that's the state of man pre-fall. Now, post-fall, Genesis 3 through the rest of the Old Testament until Christ comes. We see post-fall man, he's able to sin. Really, he's unable to not sin. Remember what we just read about Romans 8, that the mind that's set on the flesh, 
before a man comes to Christ, he's not really able to do anything in and of his own to to make himself right with God. So post-fall, man is able to sin. Certainly, we see that. Read the front page of the New York Times this morning. But not only is he just now able to sin, he is unable to not sin. He's rendered completely unable. And then the beautiful news of the gospel, Ephesians 2. God makes us alive in Christ. He speaks the words of life to dead hearts. He causes them to come alive. He gives them faith. He gives them repentance. He makes them alive so that they can turn from their sin and trust in Christ. And they are now born again. And now they are certainly still able to sin. Christians aren't perfect. Can I get an amen on that? Christians aren't perfect. But yet we are now, in ever-increasing measure, while we're still here on this earth, able to to fight against our sin. We're we're able to not sin. And this is the Christian life, right? I quote William Arnault all the time, that British theologian back in the 1800s. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has sin and the other does not, but that the Christian is taking God's side against their dreaded sin, whereas the non-Christian is taking sin's side against the dreaded God. So to be a Christian, to be reborn, is not to be perfect, but it is to be, in ever-increasing measure, becoming more and more like Jesus. Yes, it means that sometimes we'll take one step forward and two back, but if we looked at the, the chart of the life of a Christian, it, would, it may take some ticks downward, but it's going to, Lord willing, be ever-increasing towards more and more transformation to Christ. That's why, friends, that we preach here certainly the sovereignty of God and salvation, but that when we're truly saved, it will necessarily produce true change in our life. That's why here in the Bible Belt South, we reject this notion where you can just raise your hand at an altar call and then continue to live the way you are. That's not what it means to be a Christian. To be reborn is, yes, to still struggle with sin, but now God gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us his word. He gives us his community. We can fight sin. And then that leads us to the fourth state of man, which we are all longing for, which is the glorified state, where we are able to not sin. And in fact, we are unable to sin. Revelation chapter 21, let me just read a picture into that fourth state, that glorified state. John, the disciple, has this revelation, and he writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. What is death a consequence of? Sin. And so if there's no death, there's no sin. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Glorified man, when we stand before Jesus someday, will be a time when we, when we are not able to sin. We are unable to sin. Now here's something that I want you to see. Go back to the, to the slide showing the fourfold state of man. Getting to this question of why would God even allow the fall? Why would God allow the fall? Why can't we just stay pre-fall? Number one there. Wouldn't it have been better? Augustine, the one who, who, who came up with this fourfold state of man, 
hit upon something very, very important. And it's this phrase that theologians have called the happy fall. Now follow me. In Latin, it's called Felix Culpa. Latin word Felix meaning happy. Like if you speak Spanish, Feliz Navidad, happy. Feliz, Felix, happy. Culpa meaning fall or guilt, like culpability. Felix Culpa, happy fall. And here was Augustine's logic as he looked at the scriptures. He says that God judged it better to bring good out of evil than to not permit any evil to exist. So let's not just believe that because Augustine says it. Let's believe it because the inspired scriptures say it. So let me go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 16 and 17. This is Paul's logic. So we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, dealing with sin, this jacked up world, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so Paul is saying that the end state of man is going to be beyond any comparison and will completely outweigh any suffering or trial or hardship that we face in this life. He says this again in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And so Paul is taking every ounce of suffering, every ounce of sin, every ounce of despair that comes as a consequence of the fall, and he's saying that for those who are reborn, for those that will one day be glorified, the glory that they will experience on that day completely outweighs any suffering that they will face or any consequence of all time of all mankind forever and ever and ever. Which gets us back to Augustine's quote, which I think is hitting on, I think, the logic of the scriptures that God for the display of his glory, has judged it better to bring about evil, to bring good out of evil, than to not permit any evil to exist so that he would show, rather than keeping humanity on a flat line, that to allow humanity to fall and then to rescue humanity for himself and bring them up into glorious salvation, the display of his mercy in even allowing the fall is the most glorious end that he could create. So go back to the fourfold state of man. And here's the point I want to make, and then we're done. We are in number three, most of us, right now. Most of us are reborn. And by the way, if you're not reborn, there is no three and four. It goes from pre-fall to post-fall to misery. You must repent and trust in Christ. You must not trust in yourself. You must believe in what Jesus has done for you. And that is your only hope. And if you want to speak to somebody about that after church, find one of the pastors. Find somebody that you know to be a Christian. You're a sinner. You don't just need help on how to live a better life. You need to be brought back to life by the power of Christ so that you can look to his work on the cross and not to your own works as for your right standing before your holy creator God. But we're in number three right now, fighting sin. 
being gracious with one another, being patient with one another, realizing we're still dealing with sin. But I want you to see that number four, the glorified and final state of those who are in Christ is better than number one. Remember the question? Why did God even allow it? Why would God even allow it? Couldn't he have just kept everything humming along in the Garden of Eden and everything been awesome? The glorified state of man is far more unspeakably glorious than even number one. Friends, that's why in 1 Peter chapter 1, after Paul speaks about our salvation, he says something incredible about salvation. He says that angels long to look into these things. So think about that. Heavenly beings who we joined their heavenly chorus this morning when we sang from Isaiah 6 that have from, from their creation to eternity future are singing holy, 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 who've never tasted sin, who didn't rebel like the devil and his angels, who have been glorious from the beginning. Those unfallen beings are longing to look into the salvation that you and I are experiencing. Experiencing now, if we're in Christ, four is better than one. God is so good that he has deemed things to be the way they are. Friends, what does this mean? It means that nothing that is happening in this world is spinning out of God's control. Everything that I read on the front page of the New York Times, Ukraine, El Chapo, Indian farmers, asylum fraud in little China is not sneaking up on a holy God who is planning all things for the display of his glory and the good of his people. And nothing in your life, friend, is spinning out of God's control. So do you see what this does? Do you see how this informs how we live in point three? If I know that four is coming, if I know that four is not the end of life, it's the beginning of true life, then what can man do to me? What can the report from the doctor do to me? It's not taking anything away from me. It's just speeding up me getting to true life. Do you see that? Do you see how that frees us from circumstance and temporal comfort? The glory of God in even allowing the fall is to arrange a state of affairs for his redeemed that the end is far better than the beginning. Friends, I can lean forward in that foxhole. I don't care what bullets are whizzing over my head. I can lean forward into that foxhole. God is our refuge, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, though the mountains be moved into the sea, God is with us, the psalmist says in Psalm 46. Do you see, friends, this beautiful picture of sin and the fall and God's glory in redemption braces us. It turns us away from temporal trinkets and pleasures and braces us and puts steel in our spines so that in the midst of even the sin that we still have to fight against, we can lean forward into the foxhole because we know what our end holds. I can fight with that type of battle plan. And I can lean forward into that no matter what the rest of these 40 or 50 years may hold. Let this brace you, friend. Let it put steel in your spine.
And if you're not a trust, if you're not a believer in Jesus, let it shake you to its core and bring you to the end of yourself. You need to look away from yourself and to trust in Christ even now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words. Even in their despair, point us towards great hope. What can this world do to us, Lord, if we are truly in Christ? Do we really believe this? Lord, help us with it. The bad report from the doctor. the horrible circumstance, the great sin committed against us. Lord, I don't mean to minimize any of these things, and I don't mean to minimize life on this earth. Lord, these are real and tragic and tear-filled things that we still have to endure. But the, the way we are called to endure is by lifting up our eyes and seeing the end in putting everything that we're currently facing underneath that and in perspective that what awaits us, what we are going towards in Christ is far, far sweeter, far, far more pleasurable, far, far more glorious than anything that we leave behind. And let the magnet of that heavenly reality, Lord, not not make us unproductive, goofy people sitting around that are, you know, so spiritual that we're not of any earthly value. No, no, let the glory of our eternity actually finally make us of some earthly value because finally now we can let go of this world, which, 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 which ultimately makes us useful in this world. To not cling to it like it's our salvation, but to cling to you because you're our salvation and that frees us to actually care for this world and love it and point it towards that great hope. Lord, would you do that more in me? Oh, I, I cling this world so tightly. Would you do it my, for my friends here? And Lord, if there's anyone in this room who is came in not trusting in Christ, would you give them eyes to see and ears to hear, heart to believe, and would you, would you make them alive? Would these words become life, and would they trust in you? Would they turn away from trusting in themselves, and would they believe in Jesus and begin this great journey of marching towards this beautiful state? Lord, I pray that you do these things for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, let's